Well, hello, and welcome to this week's of Photographic Life. I saw this the other day, um, a quote, a photographer talking about um, his work. It said this, I do not see my work as hashtag street photography at all, but as a method to show something about the mental state of being of humanity. Well, I thought that's quite a, that's quite a statement, really. And so I decided to have a look at the work as I was unaware of the work. And I've got to be honest, I, I, I do my very best always to kind of restrain myself from talking too much about photography because any opinion I have about work is subjective. And, and to be honest with you, I'd rather you make up your own minds and I make up my own minds. There's no reason for me to dismiss that another person's work. However, in this case, I'm going to sort of... I suppose respond a little bit to that work and my response is this i thought it was really poor it was um work created in an environment that i actually know really well it could just as easily have been me in one of those pictures as to where the pictures were taken but they just didn't to me seem to have any qualities of either composition or visual language or or choice or just anything it was just very poor work but of course, the photographer had decided to take it out of what it was, which is a series of photographs of people on the street, um, and make it something more, make it about the mental state of being of humanity. His choice, not a problem. But it made me think of um, that idea of kind of being happy to... Uh, I suppose, admit our failings, admit those moments when things go wrong. Roughly uh, 10 years or so ago, I used to write a column for a professional photographer magazine that I used to edit, and it was called Being There. And the idea was that each month I would write an article about a particular photographic shoot I'd been on and kind of give a little insight as to what had happened. It was a kind of little thing I'd stolen, really, from a music magazine that had done a similar thing. And I thought that was a good idea. I enjoyed reading that. So why don't I try and do something similar? Having done that for a number of months, what I found was that every shoot that I really stuck in my memory, something had gone wrong. And invariably, it was my fault. I was perfectly okay with that. Because actually, in the bigger scheme of things, uh, nothing had gone wrong. It had been okay. The uh, other week, um, I, start, I noticed that um, the photographer Nadav Kanda has uh, a big book coming out of his celebrity portrait work. And it reminded me of a time back in the early 90s when he sent me his portfolio uh, to look at with the idea of commissioning him. I looked at the work. Um, at the time, he was a, a hardcore advertising photographer. I was working on a magazine and the work just didn't fit. It, I found it rather kind of contrived and cold. Um, I've got to be honest, sometimes I feel that about his work now. But again, it's just subjective. It's just an opinion. It doesn't matter. So I rejected Nadav at that time. Someone on Twitter said to me, oh, you know, how did you feel about that? And I said, well, fine, you know, that's OK. Not only did I reject Nadav Kanda, but I also rejected the work of Platon, uh, who I was at college with. And uh, Platon was a year below me. And I can remember him coming to see me uh, to get commissioned with a big wooden box. And on top of that wooden box was a big uh, Victorian picture frame with glass and a rose in this box. And it was just totally over the top. 
and I suggested to him that this wasn't a good way to go. He took umbrage. That was the end of the story. Perfectly okay. Just like the Beatles getting turned down, I turned down Nadav Kanda and Platon. And actually also the fashion photographer David Sims. But that's another story. So I'm perfectly happy to kind of talk about that and accept those moments when things go wrong. The podcast has been getting bigger and bigger. The audience is growing every week. And I thank you all for that support. But it made me go back to podcast one, which I've never really listened back to. I felt too embarrassed, to be honest with you. And I did the other day listen to episode one. God, it's terrible. Um, I tried to create the podcast with a kind of a uh, setup, a podcasting setup that I'd borrowed from a university. I didn't know how it worked. Um, It's pretty terrible kit anyway. And um, I had a microphone, but it wasn't until the the very good Tim Pellet told me after he listened to it back and looked at a photograph of me working with the microphone that I was using the wrong side. So the sound quality of episode one is terrible. It's full of sounds and kind of humming and I'm a little bit, you know, I'm very obviously an amateur. But I don't have a problem with that because we're nearly up to 100 podcasts later and gradually things have got better. I don't feel the need to try and cloak what I'm doing in text to make something that I know not to be very good um, better than it actually is. I think it's okay to be uh, open and honest about when we get things right, but also when we get things wrong. As the old saying always uh, goes, you know, if it looks like a duck and if it quacks like a duck, if it smells like a duck and if it acts like a duck, the chances are it's a duck. Talking about seeing little comments that uh, provoke me to reflect. Over the last week, I saw a a question being asked on a forum, on a Facebook forum by a a very well-known photographer in the UK. He said this, Hi all, can anyone think of some inspiring works, not just photographic, that relates to strangers, community and neighbours? Anything relating to work carried out in a street photo style in particular. I I, I didn't know what to say or what to think when I I saw that. Surely what, what this photographer is asking for is the majority of photography. And what does street photo style mean anyway? It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast this week. This idea of photography created on the street. It's a big discussion point, street photography. And I know uh, previous guest Nick Turpin is somebody who has some really informed um, thoughts about that. But that idea of sort of being so generalist in asking uh, a community for help really made me wonder exactly what our expectation is of such a question. Surely as a very well-known photographer as this person is, they should be able to answer those questions themselves. Are what we're doing here passing the responsibility for the hard graft over to a community, to a group of people? I have to say, I've asked a question a little bit more specific than that uh, previously on a a forum. I didn't get any responses back. And I've noticed that this person didn't either. So maybe really what we're talking about here is the importance of doing your own research, working out what you need to do and how you need to do it. 
Over previous podcasts, I've had a couple of friends, I suppose, old colleagues uh, feature on the podcast telling us what photography means to them, only if I thought they were really relevant to the conversation. Um, but I've tried to avoid it as much as possible. And, and as I've, I've mentioned previously, the majority of the photographers that appear here on the podcast, I've never met before. I constantly try and avoid that idea of the uh, the kind of boys club or that kind of inner circle that if you don't know Grant, you're not going to get on the podcast. That's never been the case and it never will be the case. However, this week, I'm uh, really excited to welcome somebody who I do know and I have known for a very long time. And that's the photographer Roger Stoll. I well remember as a very young uh, art director back in the late 1980s, working with Roger down at uh, the Rossetti Studios off the King's Road with the great food writer and stylist Andy Harris uh, on an Easter photo shoot where we were baking bread. And, and, and I seem to remember drinking more wine than doing anything else. Uh, Roger has worked as a professional advertising and editorial photographer since 1968. After leaving Portsmouth Art School in the UK with a diploma in fine art, he began assisting the photographer Clive Arrowsmith before being sacked for being a hopeless assistant. He went on to photograph fashion and portraits for magazines, including the legendary Nova and uh, a huge amount of interiors for Sir Terence Conran's retail store, Habitat, somewhere where I used to have a Saturday job selling furniture in Croydon. But that's another story. Anyway, back to Roger. Uh, before beginning to work as a food, wine and lifestyle-based photographer in 1985. During his long career, he's worked editorially for Elle, Marie Claire, The Sunday Times, The Times, The Observer, Tatler, Homes and Gardens and Food and Travel. During the 1990s, he directed commercials and created advertising campaigns for clients including Heinz, Maggi, Nestle, uh, Kellogg's, Little Chef, I loved the Little Chef, uh, Dolmio, HP Source, Sainsbury's, Schweppes and many others. In 2001, he moved to rural France where he continues to create food-based images and hold photography workshops. Every day, Roger posts images of the food he's cooked on his Instagram page at rogerstoll.35. My name is Roger Stowell. I'm 75 years old now, and for 50 of those years, I've been a photographer. For me, photography was never a hobby. I've never had a hobby, and never will I have one. Hobby is a word that reduces the activity or pursuit to which it refers to a secondary role. So it'd be safe to say that photography and I were never in such a relationship. The mid-60s found me at art school studying painting with two subsidiary subjects, printmaking and filmmaking. And it was a combination of these two that led me to photography. Photosilk screen and photolithography demanded photographic images and I was getting them from magazines or anywhere I could find them and it was not long before I wanted to create my own and it meant I found aboard a famously reliable and for the most important part very, very cheap Russian camera, a Zenith at the same time, owing to a much lower enrolment in the filmmaking course at the art school, much lower than expected, there was a huge budget for the few of us doing the course. It meant 
I was soon making 30-minute films with sound unheard of at the time with an Aladdin's cave of equipment. It was all a complete epiphany, and I was sure from that moment that I wanted to be a photographer, a photographer, filmmaker. I wanted to make images for my living. At the end of my second year, the year before my graduation, I was offered a job assisting a successful London photographer who would turn out to be the same man who was to fire me in 1968, thus launching me into my career in the same way that a sandwich is launched out of a moving train's window if it doesn't come up to scratch. But before being deservedly thrown out of the window, there's no doubt that I was a hopeless sandwich of an assistant. I learnt so much, for which I'm still hugely grateful. I was introduced to the magic of Hasselblads and Nikons and also to a marvellous uh, little Olympus Pen half-frame camera with a Carl Zeiss Yenna 180mm sonar lens, which, when loaded with Kodachrome, was like a magic wand. Uh, the images it produced were so rich in colour and they were it was as though they were etched on these tiny half-frame transparencies. Wonderful, wonderful-looking pictures. The photographer was Clive Arrowsmith. From him, I learned about light. The light of day, which had, I hadn't really noticed before, and the light of electronic flash... He was a master of lighting, and some of it rubbed off on me. At the time when I first joined him, there were no such things as Polaroid backs, which meant that I learnt the skills of taking accurate light readings and similar things of, of actually learning photography. But most of all, he instilled in me the fun and the joy of making images with a camera. Interestingly, in the whole time I was with him, some 18 months, I never once entered a darkroom, a habit that I have religiously practised throughout the rest of my career. I loathed the chemicals and the confinement, but most of all, I couldn't bear the thought of being locked away in a darkened room from what was going on all around me at that exciting time. Luckily, there was a plethora of wonderful labs and a band of more than excellent printers, such as the great Robin Bell, who I'm happy to say is still playing his trade today. In 2001, Jenny and I, my wife, we moved from London to live in the French countryside, which had long been my dream. A dream that had not made it clear to me that the nearest E6 laboratory was to be around 100 kilometres from the house. Rather than move nearer to the laboratory, I moved to the newly arrived digital photography. I may have avoided the darkroom up to that point in my life, but Photoshop has become my virtual darkroom. I embraced digital photography wholeheartedly from the off and treat it not as a replacement for analogue, but as a completely different way of approaching photography. And being so different, digital has drastically changed not only the way that I work, but also the look and subject matter of the images that I now produce. It is also true to say that its immediacy has allowed me to adopt a more relaxed style of picture making. I now doodle, draw and imagine pictures. I make and take pictures all the time. And that is the present in which I live, a present that teeters on the brink of change each day, but a present that allows me to spend much of my time looking at pictures and, above all, making them. 
Thank you, Roger, for your contribution this week. It's wonderful to hear his mellifluous tones there. Um, lots of things to pick up in up on. I think this week from Roger. One, it's also it's always great to hear photographers who've been working for a long time, still as passionate and enthusiastic about making images as Roger is. Also great there, I think, and really interesting to hear his very evident passion uh, for analogue work, um, but not seeing that analogue has to be also in the darkroom. And uh, certainly that's where when I used to shoot analogue, um, I was never somebody who was in the darkroom. I would always drop off my work at a lab and work with really good printers. Bob and Terry at Grade One, who had been the people behind Condé Nast printing for a long time. But that's another story. But anyway... Great to hear that from Roger, that, you know, that, that engagement with analogue was in a different way than perhaps a lot of people perceive an engagement with analogue has to be. Um, his engagement with digital, obviously hugely exciting still for him. And also, time back is every week that this happens. It, it kind of amazes me because nothing is ever planned. I have no script for this. Um, but Roger there saying, you know, I was a hopeless assistant. Exactly what I was saying at the beginning of this week's podcast. It's perfectly okay to admit your frailties and to accept the fact that we're not all good at everything. It doesn't really matter. Just give it a go. But also, of course, that importance of learning and understanding the basics of seeing and understanding light, whether that is God's light, natural light or artificial light. And certainly something there that I feel is so important um, for people studying photography to understand that it's not about themes and concepts. It's basically about light. It's about capturing light in a box. So really great to hear from Roger there and um, to hear his passion and his enthusiasm. Uh, I've been trying to get a number of photographers onto the podcast over the last year or so. And uh, finally, I got one. Then I got Roger. And I think Roger's one of the best out there and is highly respected. So even if you may think, yeah, food photography is not for me, check out Roger's work because I think you may just be surprised. Anyway, um, a Bob Dylan line comes to my mind as I'm sitting in the shed recording this, which is the wind was out howling, the snow was outrageous, we cracked through the night and we cracked through the dawn. Slightly like that. I got it slightly wrong. But anyway, um, it's windy outside and it's been windy all week and uh, it's certainly howling around the shed but of course what we're all going to do in the coming week despite the rains and the winds we're all going to take care <laughs> 